If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. I'm going to tell you a little bit why I'm, I'm reading this verse, or we're going to be uh, looking at this verse today. Um, it seems like lately, whatever place I'm in, uh, this kind of idea of the purpose of the church just keeps uh, uh, weighing on my heart, on my own life, on myself looking and examining my own life and seeing where I fall short, and just in the things that I'm teaching. Uh, I'm a counselor and a Bible teacher at Cherokee Christian School. That's my, my main job. And over there, we've been studying the Old Testament. We've been looking at the Mosaic Covenant. We've been looking at God's calling of the nation of Israel, of Him forming them, making them, bringing them out, and putting them at Mount Sinai, calling them a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, and their purpose and their place on this planet and what God called them to do. Uh, and uh, in, in doing that, like, it's, it's just been weighing heavily on my heart. Um, again, uh, just like examining my own life and the, the thing that God has us here to do. Uh, in the youth group, I teach the youth group on Wednesday nights. And in the youth group, we've been talking about the purpose of the youth group, why we meet as a youth group, and what is the purpose and the function of the youth group in this church. And again, the same sort of themes just keep coming back. And so when, when Shane asked me if, if I wouldn't mind preaching today, I mean, the, the thing that was just on my heart, on my mind, that I just really wanted to, to, to uh, myself investigate and study uh, and then to teach is uh, the calling and the purpose of the church. The first place I almost went was what Joel just read in Ephesians 5. But again, since I've been teaching Old Testament at school, uh, this verse and, or these two verses in First Peter totally jumped out. And I, I wanted to, uh, to speak about them. So the only thing was I have not been studying First Peter. So I, you know, the, this last week I've been really getting into uh, the, the context of First Peter, who wrote it, why he wrote it, who he wrote it to, all these things. And knowing that stuff, knowing the context of this letter, why it was written, when it was written, and to whom it was written, makes it mean so much more. It makes it real. You know, I always tell my kids at school that we read the Bible like fairy tales. You know what I mean? They all seem like cartoons. And, and the most important thing is we, we bring it into the context of uh, historical and grammatical context. We look at the context of the scripture itself, both close and far context, and we know what the writer is writing, especially when we're doing something like this, where we're just pulling two verses out of a letter and, and looking at them. So that being said, I want to take you a little bit into a little journey here of the context of First Peter that will help, like I said, frame up what we're saying and really makes the letter way more impactful. So that being said, here's a little history lesson, a little history I learned about the, the times. Uh, on the night of July 19th, 64 AD, so that's where we're at in history, a fire began in the shops around the Circus Maximus, Rome's enormous chariot stadium. These flames devastated the city for six days before finally coming under control and then reignited and burned for another three days. When the fire was finally quenched, 10 of Rome's 14 districts were in ruin. The 800-year-old Temple of Jupiter and the Atrium of Vesta, the two most important temples in Rome, were gone. And two-thirds of Rome had been destroyed. The fire consumed the portion of the forum where the senators lived uh, and worked. And the houses of the aristocracy were incinerated. It became an end, in a way, to the power of the aristocracy in Rome. Now, history has blamed the Roman emperor Nero for this great fire, for the great fire of Rome, implying that he started the fire so that he could bypass the Senate and rebuild Rome to his liking. And much of what we know about this fire comes from an aristocrat and a historian of the time would have been young during the fire, about 10 years old, but grew up during the, the rebuilding of Rome, and his name was Tacitus. Uh, he claimed that Nero watched Rome burn while merrily playing his fiddle. As bands of rioters uh, prevented citizens from fighting the fire with threats of torture, uh, many historians believe that Nero did level the city on purpose in order to build his Domus 
Aurea, which means golden house in the Latin. Immediately, and the reason they believe this is because immediately following the great fire of Rome, Nero began rebuilding this, uh, the city, and he built this large landscape portico villa right in the heart of ancient Rome. Nero's magnificent series of villas and pavilions were set upon a landscaped park with a man-made lake. Historians estimate that it covered somewhere between 100 and 300 acres. And the golden house was designed as a place of entertainment with 300 rooms, perfectly white polished marble walls, ornate floor plans, niches, and exedras that concentrated and dispersed daylight throughout the palace. Uh, There were pools in the floors, there were fountains splashing in the corridors, paintings covering the walls. Nero took great interest in every detail of the project. This is the coolest thing I I read. In the main dining area of this place, uh, there was this ingenious revolving dome ceiling that was painted like the heavens. And, and slaves would crank this domed ceiling and it would spin and make it look like the heavens were spinning above you as you ate. And then it would rain down perfume and, and rose petals on the people that were eating to make this like perfectly pleasant as- atmosphere. We need, we need that in Atlanta. I mean, that was 2,000 years ago. But anyway, that being said, it, it was just a, just a, an, an, uh, a very uh, lavish place. Um, uh, Nero is said to have thrown the best parties ever and was obsessed with his status as an entertainer and an artist. To top it all off, Nero had a 103-foot tall bronze statue. That's eight feet shorter than the Statue of Liberty to kind of give you some context on how tall this statue was. Um, called Colossus Neronis, created to sit in the vestibule of this palace. And this statue represented Nero as a god, more than likely the sun god Sol. And it was placed just outside the main entrance of the palace at the end of the Via Appia, which is the main road from the south of Italy that came into the city of Rome. So if you came from the south, you would travel up this road to go to Rome, and you would see this Colossus Neronis and then this palace that he built for entertainment and luxury. Now, the aristocracy blamed Nero for the fire because they had been adamantly opposed to his plans to build uh, this Domus Aurea. And, uh, and his idea of building this palace of entertainment in the middle of the city of Rome in order to deflect the accusations that he or those associated with him started the fire, Nero blamed the fire on an obscure group, uh, a new Jewish religious sect called Christians. Nero accused the Christians as the instigators of the burning of Rome and began one of the most terrible and gruesome persecutions of the early church to deflect the blame off of him. He began indiscriminately and mercilessly crucifying all Christians, throwing them to dogs, feeding them to lions during gladiator events. It is said that he often lit garden parties with the burning carcasses of Christians, Christian human torches. 200 years would pass before the Christians escaped the persecutions that began under Nero. In the meantime, Nero's reign crumbled soon after this. Four years after the fire, the Senate and the army turned against Nero, and he was forced to flee Rome. He was denounced as public enemy as a public enemy, and he committed suicide by stabbing himself with an iron blade on June, uh, June 9th, 68 AD. He was 31 at the end of his life. That's, that's crazy. All this happened before he was 31. Nero's rule is often associated with tyranny and extravagance. He is known for his many executions, including that of his mother and the possible poisoning of his stepbrother. Uh, He often made rulings that went against the aristocracy and pleased the lower class, and he was criticized as being obsessed with personal popularity. Those things being said, the letter of 1 Peter was written to Christians right at the beginning of this persecution that would have started in Rome because of 
uh, Nero's accusation of Christians. Uh, the Apostle Peter wrote from Rome to persecuted Christians in the Roman Empire, specifically in the region of Asia Minor, which is our modern-day Turkey. And he wrote uh, this letter in 64 to 65 AD, which would have been right at the beginning of these persecutions. This is the same persecution that would end up ending Peter's life for the next two or three years. That being said, persecution and, 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 and torture and things like that are imminent for these people, but they are far further away. And, and I kind of think of it like this, is, is, you know, if we were in Georgia and this stuff began in California, we would know it is coming, but it's still further away, possibly. You don't see these people fleeing yet, but he's telling them of what's coming, not to be surprised about what's happening, and then how to live and function and what their purpose and calling is in the midst of this persecution. Um, and, and we see evidence of this in the scripture, in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, if you want to look at that real quick. Peter says to them, Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be baffled, in other words, by this fiery ordeal. It says by this burning, actually. He uses that word. Probably literally speaking of this burning of Rome, the accusation of Christians, and the persecution that is coming to them because they are the ones that are being um, indicted for the burning of Rome. Um, He says, Do not be baffled at this fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though it was some strange thing happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ— which literally are coming under the persecutions of Nero, the slaughtering and burning of Christians, he says, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. He does not say flee, he does not say cower, he does not say fight, he says, live right. Uh, And he says, uh, "If, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory uh, and of God rests on you. And here's, here's his exhortation to him. In verse 15, he says, Make sure, make sure of this thing, that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler, the very things that they are being accused of. Do not suffer for the things that they are accusing us of. He says, um, uh, But if anyone suffers as a Christian which at the time, this name would not be a, a, a title that you would want, in a sense. It's a, it's a scornful mocking title. It was used to, to mock those who were trying to live like Christ. And so he says, if you, are, if you, are, if you suffer as a Christian, uh, in other words, that's what the people were coming, they were finding the Christians. Uh, he says, do not be ashamed, but glorify God in this name. Take the name, know what you are. And if suffering comes, suffer for Christ. For it is time for judgment, the purification by fire, to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? In other words, he says, judgment is coming, persecution is coming. But the persecution, the judgment we face is nothing in comparison to what those who are going to, those who reject Christ are going to face. This is our fiery ordeal, but this is not the end. And he says in verse 18, And if it is with difficulty that the righteous are saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? And then in 2 Peter 3.12, he says this, Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of what is coming, Peter writes this letter reminding the Christians in Asia Minor of their calling and of their purpose and gives them practical instruction on how to live in the face of, of the present opposition that is coming their way or may already be upon them. He, uh, here in America, we likewise, the church in America, we face a deadly opposition, a dangerous threat that tests the hearts and the faith of all those who proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Our opposition does not yet arise from murderous threats from a hostile government, but by the doctrine of demons, by false teachers, by false doctrines that disorient, 
that distort and distract the church of God from accomplishing its very purpose on this earth. In doing so, we, we are confused. Christians become confused as to what the church actually is and why it even exists. The word church has been degraded and debased to mean nothing more than a building to many people or an assembly of people that have consistent standards and ethics or an elitist fraternity with a fictitious legacy of succession that boasts about its own authenticity. The purpose has been perverted to an extent that, that some cower in weakness at the sight of sin or disassociate themselves with the outside world for fear of, 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 of being uh, conquered or, or um, infected. While others strive to end poverty, to end AIDS, to stop malaria, and to reclaim the government for Jesus Christ. Even those who are not deceived by popular trends and strive to hold fast to the word of God and the calling that God has called us to, even we are very easily distracted by lust, by desire, by ambition, by fear, by pride, and by pleasure. That we become tasteless salt and useless vessels. There are many threats against our church. And we have to remind ourselves of the calling that we have, what God says of his church and our purpose on this earth. We need to remind ourselves of this and give ourselves practical instructions on how to live in face of the present opposition that we have. And that is where we're coming into 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. And here's what Peter says, God speaking through Peter, says to the Christians in Asia Minor, to the church. He says to them, verse 9, but you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The first thing we're going to look at, like I said, is the calling of the church. What is the church? What does God say the church is? And context is the king. Again, we're jumping into these two passages, but Peter's already been talking for a whole chapter before this, telling these people what they are, uh, giving them titles that God bestows upon them in a sense and, and shows God's work and how he has formed them and made them and stuff like that. If you look at the immediate context, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1, he says that these people, these Christians, they are chosen. They are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. I explain this to my kids at school like this, that God knows all things. You know, when God makes promises, when God makes covenants with people, it's not like God has to hope and then try to set everything in place and hope it works or anything like that, or that he looks down through the history of time and he can see. what it, All that stuff is just one thing to God. God just sees. I mean, God can see Adam and Eve and Jesus on the cross and Jesus' return as if it were one thing. I mean, it's just his world, his creation. He knows beginning to end. He's all-powerful. He he ordains and makes all things. And so, before the foundations of the world, Paul says, and by the foreknowledge and understanding of God, he chooses, he chooses each and every person in his church. And he chooses the church for a purpose. It says that they are holy. They are set apart from all others uh, to God by his Holy Spirit. This is the, some of the stuff that God says about the church. That the church, the people of, 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 of his church are cleansed from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. In 1.3, that by his mercy he has caused them to be born again. In 1.4, that he has given them an imperishable and perfect and eternal inheritance already reserved in heaven for all of the church. In uh, verses 5 through 9 from chapter 1, that he has given them a salvation, that he's given them an inheritance, that he's given them a position to be revealed when Jesus Christ returns. 
And in 112, he talks about all of this stuff that God has bestowed upon this church and the things that they are. And he says that uh, this is something so glorious, so baffling, so unbelievable that angels eagerly desire to investigate and understand and know to see the things that God has promised for his church and the things that he does for his church. In verses 15 through 16, he says that, that his church is holy, just like he is holy. And they are also called to be holy, like he is holy. In verse 118, he says that they are redeemed, that he redeemed them. In 123, they are born again, never to perish. And in 2.5, they're being built up as a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. Now, in the context of Scripture as a whole, the verses that we're reading here are the exact same things that God proclaimed to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai when he made the Mosaic Covenant with the nation of Israel, stating what Israel was to be and what they are. In Exodus 19, 5 through 6, God spoke of Israel and said, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, then you shall be my own treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. In other words, God says, you are my possession, mine. God makes all people. Psalm 139 says he weaves them together in the womb perfectly. He makes all men the image of God. They're all his. All nations are his. He creates all nations and ordains all governments. And all things are his. And all things are under his control. But Israel, Israel is the only nation ever that God specifically said, these are my own possession for my own purposes. And he says that they are to be a kingdom of priests. To all men, a holy nation set apart for my plans and my purposes. The very same things he is going to be talking to and saying to the church here in in 1 Peter. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, speaking of Israel, he says, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the people that are on the face of the earth. The thing that I want you to see here, whether in close context speaking of the church or whether in far context speaking of Israel or even the tribulation saints after the church, whatever it may be, here's how God always works in his creation. In Genesis 3, sin entered this good and perfect world that God dwelt in and lived in with mankind and it separated us from God. We are separated from God by sin. We are now destined for death both spiritually and physically and because of sin, we are separated But with sin came a promise that God gave to us that one is coming to crush the head of the serpent, to do away with sin, and to be victorious over the stuff that has happened in this world because of sin. And from that point forward, we're looking for this promised seed. In Genesis 12, he made a covenant with Abraham, and he swore to Abraham, everlasting covenant, that he would make a nation out of him and put him in a place, in a land with geographical boundaries, and that all the earth would be blessed by him and his descendants forever. And then in Exodus 19, we see that that nation is Israel, that God has now brought them out of Egypt, and he has them at Mount Sinai. He enters another covenant with the nation of Israel and says, you are my possession. You are my kingdom of priests. You are my holy nation, set apart from all nations to be a kingdom that tells the world about me and the promised seed that is coming, the Messiah, the king that will reign, the things that they will learn over the years. But this, this is how God works. He chooses his people And he equips them and empowers them by his spirit to do his works. All of his good works and all of his plans were laid out before the foundation of the world. And he chooses and empowers and places his people in the exact place to accomplish his good works so that his plan is perfectly done. He does not miss anything. That is what God does. 
And so I always tell the kids, you got to think, if you're looking at the, the history of the world, and we're watching the, 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 the video of the history of the world and how God works and how he's bringing salvation to the world, you got Israel over here, and he's doing this thing with Israel. But then Israel's disobedient to the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, they, they, they reject their king. They reject the Messiah. They say he is not our king. And God puts it on pause for a second. Pause on Israel. And we turn over here, and we start watching the movie of the church. God is now using this entity he has made called the church to be a royal priesthood, a chosen uh, race, a, uh, a holy nation. And he is using it for his purposes and his plans to do his will on this earth. But the credits will roll and we'll see all the people that were involved. And then when it's over, he's going to turn back to Israel, hit unpause, and we're going to finish the story because God's word does not fail. His plans have not completely been fulfilled of what he has said. And he never exaggerates, he never lies, and he will do all that he has set out to accomplish. But this is how he accomplishes it. By choosing and empowering and sending. This is what God does. And so, in 1 Peter 2, 9, we see that the church is called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. What does that mean? First thing, chosen race. When we talk about a race, we're going to use three different words for a group of people. They all just mean a group of people in a sense. This idea is a nation or people. With this word, uh, genos, comes this uh, sort of idea of relation in some capacity. It can also be used to describe a family or a lineage, an offspring, or a kind. So we are a chosen group of people, uh, and in some capacity, we're related. I mean, you could say a chosen family, a chosen race, a chosen nation. The word chosen here means to, to select, to elect, to pick. These are God's chosen people, all one related body. He uses this word all the time in the Bible to speak about angels and their work, to speak about Jesus, to speak about the church, to speak about David, to speak about Israel, to speak about Abraham in Genesis 18, 18 through 19. He tells Abraham that you're going to be a great and mighty nation, and in you, all the nations, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. And then he says in verse 19, for I have chosen you, says I have chosen him, but speaking to Abraham, I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, doing righteousness and justice. Speaking of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, 6, he says the same thing. He says, you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you, chosen you to be a people of his own possession out of all the people on earth. Speaking of Levi and of the Levitical priests, he says to, to uh, uh, speaking of little Levitical priests, in Deuteronomy 18, 5, the Lord your God has chosen Levi and his sons from all the tribes of Israel to stand and serve in the name of the Lord forever. He chose Israel, and then within Israel, he chose Levi, and he chose Levi to be his priest for the kingdom of priests for Israel to do their job. Speaking of David and his brothers, this is a good example of choosing and not choosing. When God was seeking out a king after his own heart to be the next king of Israel after Saul, he sends Samuel to Jesse's house, and, and Jesse brings in all of his boys, and, and he starts passing his sons before Samuel, and God tells Samuel, you know, Samuel sees the first one, Eliab, and he's like, this guy's awesome. He's a soldier. He looks, he's tall. He's strong. He's got to be the next king of Israel, and, and God tells Samuel, don't look at the outside. Don't just look at his appearance because I see the heart, and he says, and I've rejected him. It's not the one. Uh, he, the next, they bring in uh, Abinadab, and, and, and Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen this one. Then they bring in Shaman, and Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen this one. And then he brings in all seven of his other boys, and, and Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Is there anybody else? And so David, their youngest, was out in the field. They bring David in, and he passes in front of Samuel, and the Lord says to Samuel, arise and anoint him, for this is he. 
God's choice. God chose David. But listen to what it says right after he chose David to be the next king. Samuel anoints him, and after he's anointed in front of his brothers and father, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. God chose and he gave David his Holy Spirit that mightily came upon him. And that is what made David, David. I always tell my kids at school, Samson did not have magical hair. He's not Rapunzel from old, you know. The Ark of the Covenant is not a magical box. The Holy of Holies was not a magical room. These places were special and powerful. These men were able to accomplish amazing things because God chose them and then empowered them to do his will and accomplish his plans. That is why they were powerful. God empowers uh, people with his Holy Spirit to fulfill his purpose, and nothing will stop his purpose. We see this throughout the Bible. The, uh, powerful armies are conquered like that by either water or just dying overnight. Uh, the seas and rivers are split in half. Disease and death have no power over the plans and purposes of God. God chooses and empowers by his Holy Spirit all of his people to accomplish his plan, and that is what he has said of us, the church, that we are a chosen group of people empowered by his Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit of the omnipotent God to accomplish his purpose on this earth. That is what we are. We are a chosen race. Secondly, he says we are a royal priesthood. This word royal comes from the root word that means king, and it's used 311 times in the New Testament. It always refers to a king or something kingly. It refers to King Herod, King David, King Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, or royalty. And we are called royal, of the king. Priesthood. The priesthood, again, this is the role of the Levites that we already kind of looked at back in, uh, when we talked about him choosing the Levites. Malachi 2.7 is one of the most, I, just, I feel like, straightforward verses when it talks about the, the role of the priest, the function of the priesthood. In Malachi 2.7, it says, For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge. That's their, their job, is to preserve knowledge. And men should seek instruction from his mouth, from the priest's mouth. For the priest, he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. He is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Uh, the priest stands and serves in the name of the Lord forever, preserving the knowledge of God for people. They are the messengers of the Lord of hosts to mankind, proclaiming his word and his gospel and reminding the people to repent, to believe, and to follow. This is the function of the priest. So the church, we are a royal priesthood. You put those things together, you have a priesthood of royal rank, a priesthood of, 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 of royal service. It describes both our position and our commission. And positionally, we are kings. We inherit our royal and rightful position from God, our Father, and our brother, Jesus Christ, the King of kings. That is our family. That is our association. And we are of that family. In 2 Timothy 2, 12, it says, We will also reign with him. In Revelation 26, speaking of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign where Christ reigns on earth as king with a rod of iron, uh, it says that blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Christians are baptized with royal blood. We are adopted into royalty and we will inherit thrones rightly given to those of our family. During the thousand year reign, when Christ reigns on earth as king, uh, we will lay our crowns before the king of kings, um, and, uh, but we will be priests and kings for our God. 
During the thousand-year kingdom, there is still the potential for sin. There is still death. There would be no reason for Jesus to reign with a rod of iron if there wasn't. And if you read Ezekiel and you read Isaiah and you see what the millennial, king entail, or millennial kingdom entails, there is purpose and function for Israel and for all of those grafted into the kingdom of God to be both priests to the nations and kings of the earth, to rule and reign with Jesus Christ the King. That is what we will do. But what does it mean now in this life? Our commission, our purpose now is this, to exemplify our king, to exemplify what Christ was when he was on this earth. Though we are kings, we are to submit in obedience to our king Jesus and exemplify his life of what he showed us, what it looks like to live in obedience to God's will. And the most explicit verse on this, I believe, comes from Philippians 2, 5 through 9. In Philippians 2, Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he was God. If anybody ever had the right and, 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 and to, to say, you must listen to me and submit to me and bow before me, it would be Jesus. But Jesus, being God, did not see equality with God a thing to be grasped. But here's what he did. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. But not only doing that, not only humbly serving, not only humbly coming, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to God's will and God's plan for the salvation of mankind to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is our function and our role right now, to empty ourselves of anything that hinders us from full allegiance and full obedience to our King and our example, Jesus Christ. We are to walk in humility, walk in integrity, and walk in obedience to the will of God. We are sent by the King and we are of His kingdom to perform the duties of the priests on this earth to preserve wisdom, to proclaim truth, to sanctify others, to call others to to repentance and faith. Um, We are the messengers of the Lord of hosts. And we are empowered by the one that has been raised from the dead and seated at God's right hand, above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only this age, but the one to come. All things are in subjection to Christ. And he is the head of the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. We subject ourselves to his leadership and to his calling. And, and, and we are obediently to be faithful to follow what he has laid out before us because we are a royal priesthood. Next, he says that we are a holy nation. A holy nation. Holy means to be set apart, to set apart and reserve for God and his services. That's the idea. To be distinct and different from all other people on the face of this planet. We are holy, just like God is holy. And God is set apart without sin, perfectly light, perfectly truth, perfectly powerful, knowing all things, set apart and above all other things. That's what God is. And we ourselves are not only holy, but to be holy with our lives. We are to be set apart. Um, uh, in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, he says, Beloved, I urge you, as aliens and strangers, as if you didn't even belong here on this earth, abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Why? Remember, they're in the middle of persecution because they're being accused of arson, of, of rioting, of, of, of starting these fires, of burning Rome, whatever it may be, all this stuff. And he says, keep your behavior excellent so that in the thing that they slander you as evildoers, they may, be, they may because of your good deeds, if they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. He does not say fight. He doesn't say flee. He says live right. And as they kill you and they see your good deeds, they'll glorify God on the day of Christ's visitation. 
That's huge. Uh, in in uh, 1.15, we already said that, that uh, just like he is holy, the one who called you, you yourself are to be holy in all of your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. In 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24, he says, You have been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, and nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That was the, 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 the encouragement. That was the exhortation to these Christians who were going to suffer. And it's the same thing as us, with, with us that we are to exemplify Jesus Christ, that we are not to sin and to rid our life of sin, that we are not to deceive and rid our, our, our tongues of deceit and untruthfulness, that, that even if we are threatened, we entrust ourselves to him. And even though we are reviled, we do not revile in return because we are holy. We are set apart, distinct and different, a holy nation of God to be a blessing to this earth. That is our testimony. We are a holy nation. The last thing he says is that we are a people for God's own possession. We are God's own possession. He acquired us and he treasures us. We're, uh, in, in, in the Old Testament, speaking of Israel, uh, and he says the same thing of Israel, they're his own possession, his treasure possession. He says they're the apple of his eye. He looks at all of his chosen children who he is empowered by his spirit and we are his treasure. And we are his. 179 times in the Old and New Testament, uh, he refers to either Israel or the church or the tribulation saints as my people. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, he says that you were sealed in him with his Holy Spirit of promise. And he's given that as a pledge of our inheritance uh, in view of the redemption of God's own possession of his church, of his people, of his saints, of his children. He goes on in 14 to say, uh, that, that he gave himself for us to redeem us. I'm sorry, this is Titus 2.14. He gave himself to us to redeem us from lawless deeds and to purify to himself a people for his own possession. This is what God does. We are God's own acquired, treasured possession on this earth. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? What is the purpose? That is what we are. Those are the things he says about us. And those are the things we have to remind ourselves so we're not confused and deceived. But what is the purpose? Because like Paul said, to die would be way better. I mean, imagine if, if the moment, because he knows all things. He knows our soul and our heart. And he knows where his spirit lies. And wouldn't it be wonderful the moment that his spirit enters into our life and we are made alive that we end this life. So there's no more struggle with sin, suffering, all those things, persecutions. And he loves his children. But he leaves us here for a purpose. And Paul knew that. In the same verses that he said to, to die would be way better, and he says that his desire was to depart. Paul wanted to die because he knew that would be very much better, he says, and that to be with Christ would be gain. Paul understood that, yet at the same time knew his purpose. And here's the purpose that he lays out. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. There's work to be done. Fruitful labor for Paul. To remain on in the flesh, he says, is more necessary for your sake. Speaking to other Christians, speaking to those even who did not know Christ yet but would come to know Christ. 
Paul lives on for the sake of others and for the work that God has him to do. Convinced of this, he says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. So there's a purpose for the church. Paul understood the purpose of his life. To die would be very much better, but to live is purposeful because there's fruitful labor to be done. If you look at our verse, he says, after he calls them uh, these things, the people for God's own possession, he says, so that, here's the purpose statement, in order that, for the purpose that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once not a people, now you are a people. You had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Here is the purpose of the church, to proclaim the excellencies of God everywhere, to proclaim the excellencies of God. This means to announce and to shout out and to tell who God is, his incomparable character, his glory, his praises, his perfect quality, his love, his goodness, his righteousness, and his mercy, his grace and his judgment, his salvation and his redemption, his gospel given to mankind. Old Testament saints, Moses and David, cried out for this, to know his ways and to know him more so that they could live pleasing in his sight, for them to be taught the things of God so that they may teach others, to meditate on the word day and night, and to understand and know our Lord so that we can do the function of the priest and tell others of the excellencies of God. And part of the excellencies of God are these three contrasting things that he states. And and he uses the Christians and says, look at your own life. The three contrasting descriptions are this. The excellencies of God who called you, Christian, from darkness into light. This whole darkness and light thing is used often in the New Testament. John talks about it, saying God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 5, 8 through 13, and says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, live, exist as children of light, trying to discern what is pleasing to God. Take no part in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but expose them. Expose the darkness and live in light. In other words, uh, Peter is saying here, proclaim the excellencies of God who for you took you from darkness to light, from, 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 from wickedness to, to, to holiness, from deceitfulness to truth, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, from children of wrath to children of life. From eternal damnation to eternal reward. Proclaim, tell others the excellent work of God through his son, Jesus Christ. In 1 John 1, 6 through 8, talking about this concept, he says, If we say we have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and... The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. That is the message. God sent his son to take us from darkness to light, and that is the redemption that we have. Those are the excellencies of God, and we must proclaim those. That is the function of the church. He says that you were not a people, but now you are a people. Referring back to uh, what the prophet Hosea said in Hosea 1, 6 through 10. After Israel's disobedience, he he tells Israel that his compassion will be taken from them that they're going to be afflicted, and they they are going to uh, endure the curses of the covenant he made with them. And he says to them that you are not my people, and I am not your God. What a, a terrifying thing to hear that spoken of you, and that's what Israel heard. But right after that, God says, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand on the sea that cannot be measured or numbered. And in the same place where it is said to you, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are sons of the living God. Paul in Romans Uh, 9 quotes the same verse referring to the church and he says 
referring to Hosea, he says, uh, and now talking about the church, he says, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where they were said that you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. We were at one time cut off from God, alienated from the covenants and the promises he made to Israel, away from God, separated because of our sin, unable to attain salvation, uh, children of wrath, just like all of the rest. But God, by his great mercy through what he has done with Jesus Christ, has now called us to himself, made us alive through his grace and mercy and love, uh, that we are raised with Christ, made holy and blameless, undefiled, saved from wrath, adopted, made citizens, made kings, made priests and saints, equipped and perfected by his Holy Spirit. We have to proclaim those excellencies to others. That we had one time had no mercy and now we receive mercy. This is huge. At one, at one time we lived apart from mercy. You had daily mercies that God bestows upon us like rain and sun and food and shelter and things like that. But you were under the wrath of God because of our rejection of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.28 says it very plainly. And it says, If anyone has set aside the law of Moses, he dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's bad enough, right? But then he goes on to say, How much severe the punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? We, at one time, were in that position. You, right now, may be there. But the church at one time was under the wrath of God without mercy and now we have been given mercy by God through what he did in his son Jesus Christ on the cross. And we must proclaim these excellencies to everyone. Guys, church, those in here who are in the church, we are the salt of this earth. We are the light to this world. We are messengers of the Lord of hosts on this earth. We are temples of the living God carrying the Holy Spirit of God with us wherever we go, being his instruments to bring the gospel to all of the world, both for the condemnation of his enemies and the salvation of his children. That is the function of the church on this earth. Like we read in Ephesians, we are one body with one spirit, with one hope, with one calling, with one faith and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who by grace uniquely equips and empowers each of us and places us wherever we need to be to accomplish his will so that his will is accomplished perfectly. That is what we do. We meet here on Sunday so that we can be taught his word, to be edified, to be admonished and convicted of our own sin, to be encouraged and strengthened and equipped to be made complete so we can walk out these doors knowing that we are empowered by the Spirit of God to examine our own lives first and foremost and to rid ourselves of these sins and then to exemplify Jesus Christ and how we live holy and set apart from this world and to evangelize the lost and to equip the saints edifying, encouraging, admonishing all of his children that he sends our way, able to accomplish every good work that he has laid out before the foundation of the world for us to walk in according to his will. That is the church. Practically, what does that mean? There are many people here with many different gifts, many different occupations, many different ages, many different places in life. Many are gifted athletically or academically or financially. Some are outgoing. Some are more reserved. Some live in Atlanta. Some live in Woodstock. Some are from Kenya. We're, we got all kinds of different ages from 8 to 80. Each of us, Peter says, has received a special gift, employed in serving one another, being harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for in, evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for this purpose. So when we walk out these doors, wherever we may go, 
we must first and foremost examine. If you see evidence of the fruit of the Spirit and the people that you're around, then, then you treat them as believers. If you do not see evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, the people that you're around, you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. No matter what proclaim the excellencies of God, God will decide on how it is used. Always proclaiming the excellencies of God. Examining first and foremost your own life and your own sin and your own places where you are falling short of his glory. And then helping others, evangelizing. Uh, in Jeremiah 16, 16, he says he's going uh, to call fishermen and he's going to call hunters to go out and to fish and to hunt for all of his people Israel and to bring them to himself. And then in Matthew 4, 18 and 19, speaking to Peter and Andrew, he says, follow me and be fishers of men. And then in Matthew 28, he gives us the same calling to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are to go out and we are to evangelize. We are to edify, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. We are to equip those around us, if they are believers during the week. And we ourselves are to exemplify Jesus Christ, being imitators of God. I'm going to leave you with this last statement that Peter says. These are verses that Peter says to these Christians that are in the midst of suffering. And he tells them how to live and and how to, uh, 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 this is kind of a final exhortation. He says, and we need to do the same thing. Be, uh, or I'm sorry, therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the reward, the prize. He says, God the Father impartially judges each of us according to our work. So conduct yourselves in fear uh, during the time of your stay on this earth, knowing that you are redeemed with the precious blood of a lamb, the, the spotless blood of Christ. Be sober in spirit, be on the alert Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, for the time has already passed and is sufficient for us to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, pursuing coarse sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Church, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession called for the purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of God to this world, and that is our function. And that must consume our life no matter where we are, whether we're at school or our jobs, our families, or here at the church. That is what we do. That is what we are called for. And God rewards his children for the works that they do that he laid out before the foundation of the world for them to walk in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this time that we're able to hear your truth spoken to us. And we pray, Father, knowing that we are Uh, empowered and equipped to do all of your good works, we pray that you would help us to be faithful no matter where we are, to be putting away sin in our own lives, to be living holy and set apart for you, to please you in that way, to exemplify Jesus Christ in humility and obedience in all that we do, to evangelize all those who do not know you and proclaim the excellencies of God everywhere we may go. And Lord, we pray that we would glorify you with our lives, with our thoughts, our words, and our actions, and everything that we do this week. In your heavenly name we pray. Amen.